Welcome to the second entry in my Life and Times of Video Games interview series on the people and processes behind games history. This time around, I speak to Alex, or some of you may know him as Black Oak, from shmapulations.com, a repository of Japanese game developer translations that he founded several years ago. Now, I've been a big fan of his work for a while now, and I've also found it to be an invaluable resource in producing my own games history work, in particular with the Super Mario Kart and Bomberman episodes on the show from a little while back. So it was great to hear from him about his approach to translating old interviews and to get his insights on the Japanese games industry and how it works and how it's adapted to modern game making processes. So I actually spoke to him back in November and I know I'm only just now in February getting it out. But finally, after holdups with my wedding and travel and bushfires and work, I present for your listening pleasure a lightly edited, slightly trimmed down version of our two-hour conversation. Enjoy. And I, I guess a, an interesting starting point would be um, to hear some more about your history, but uh, not, not just your history doing games translations, because I, I understand you got into translations originally through music lyrics and pop culture stuff. And I'm really curious about why and what was this... Uh, an interest you had in Japanese pop culture generally? Yeah. I mean, I, there's not anything too mysterious about it. I, I first started learning Japanese because I really wanted to play Dragon Quest V. <laughs> A friend had lent me the import cart. And like I started kind of studying it in high school, studying it on my own. Uh, and then I started taking classes in college. And I didn't get to a point where I felt confident translating things until I was, I think I was in college at Berkeley. And uh, like when I look back on those music translations, I don't really ever talk about them now very much because they're, I think I still have them somewhere online, but I think they're pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, I mean, like I was a student, I hadn't lived in Japan and... (sighs) you know, you're just looking up words in a dictionary and choosing the one that you think like fits the best. And I don't know, they're, they're passable, but looking at them now, I think I'd probably realize like, whoa, that's awkward. That sounds really stilted, you know? And then there's also just the, that's difficult. Just translating lyrics is like, it's already kind of a lost cause in some ways, lyrics and poetry. But yeah, I was really into, in high school, I was really into, um, like gothic music, gothic rock and stuff like the cure Mm. and, uh, fields of the Nephilim and Bauhaus and like all that, like eighties goth music. But there's, there just isn't really a lot of it. Like (laughs) you kind of exhaust, like you exhaust the well pretty fast with that genre. And this is actually one of the cool things about the connection of this with Japanese culture is kind of neat is that I eventually just started looking into music in Japan and I found this genre, this subgenre in Japan called a uh, visual K like the K means like style or something. And what it was is it was kind of like a kind of a dark Gothic punk metal rock mix of music that was very distinctly Japanese and uh, didn't exist anywhere else that I saw. But to me, to my eyes as a fan of like Gothic rock music, it was like this whole nother world opening up. I think I found out about it on the internet. I'm not exactly sure where I found out about it, but aside from like a very small group of fans online, like no one knew about this stuff outside of Japan. Even in Japan, it was kind of like a niche subgenre. And 
I think that was probably like my first time, you know, like Dragon Quest and stuff like that, you know, and other Japanese pop culture stuff I'd been into before. That that was all really mainstream and people kind of knew about it. But this was like my first time finding out something that was like, wow, it's like this undiscovered country of just things to be discovered. <laughs> mm. And uh, like, so I, I it kind of like fired up my like obsessiveness. And so I, I started like getting into all these bands and finding out about them and finding their lyrics. And I'd always really liked lyrics and music. I'd always really been one of those people that like really focuses on the words and the meanings of the songs and stuff. So it was, you know, it kind of just all coincided with me, like getting better at Japanese, learning Japanese. And so, yeah, I think I, I created a website for those translations where I, a a little bit similar to Shmuplations that I kind of just like went obsessive on it and just started translating like every single song I could find from like (laughs) the visual K bands that I knew. And I, it, I think it still probably is the largest repository of like visual K lyrics. I just kind of have personally disavowed it because I mean, I don't want to go back and like <laughs> revise them and I can't vouch for them as like really good translations anymore. But uh, one other interesting connection between that and Shmoplations is that uh, one of the things that I started doing then as well was translating interviews with the musicians themselves. And all that stuff was like, it was kind of like, I, I don't really think about this very often, but it was kind of like a, you know, trial run of the work with Shmoplations because, you know, it was really fun. Like there's a small community of people who not, not very few of them spoke Japanese at all. And when you share these interviews or lyrics with them, I mean, they were like super grateful. This was like, they, they had no chance their whole life otherwise of ever having, finding out about this stuff. And, you know, they're like young music fans. So they're kind of obsessed about it. So yeah, it was, it was, I guess like, you know, a premonition of things to come. <laughs> mm. And and when you were doing these these translations of of the interviews, like the, I'm getting into process a bit now. Um, were you uh, still just trying to figure it out using a dictionary at that point, or were you beginning to to do some more research and and deeper contextual uh, translations? Let's see. This would have been around like. 2000, I think, 1999, 2000. So I was definitely start, you know, to translate a lot of these terms. I was a musician already. So I, you know, it's always easiest to start translating things that you, that you know, because mm. <laughs> uh, there's less terminology to get into. And just like, you know, Japanese in particular is a, it's it, the nature of the language and the culture is such that they, they don't usually there's a certain vagueness to conversations. If you're not in the know, it's, it's called like an in-group out-group language. And you know, that has to do with the culture, but also the language they're kind of interconnected. But because of that, like even today, if, if I try to like just open up like some article or something on a topic that I know nothing about, I'm going to, I'm going to be stumped like several times probably and have to look up, you know, terminology and ideas because they just didn't, they just don't explain those things. So yeah, I, I, it wasn't like the same like research I do now for games. That also is partly because the internet was like really new then it was still burgeoning, but it was also that like internet, that pre social media internet where you would have like, <laughs> I'm sure people remember like web rings and geo cities and stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> so you, you'd occasionally find like sources of info that were just really, really deep written by like one person or something. And so there was some of that. There was like finding out 
I, I remember one of the big research things you had to do back then for music was like finding out the lineage of these different bands, like in a similar kind of way of like, Oh my God, wow. What a discovery. I'd find out that like, Oh, the guitarist from like Malice Miser was in like these three bands before Malice Miser. And Oh, I just tracked down one of their demo tapes. So I kind of got into the whole, like I got into like bootlegging shows and stuff and trading things with people in Japan. And so I guess there was that, that element of research, but as far as my like Japanese level goes, I mean, you know, it was proficient enough. I'd studied it for a few years in college. This was like before I first went to Japan. So, and I, I had professors around me and, and Japanese friends who I could ask for help on things. But, you know, language is like just an, it's like a never ending quest. So I definitely wasn't fluent then. I just had enough proficiency to do these translations. So you uh, got into doing translation work professionally, like you got qualified. Uh, and, so what is it about translations that you find so interesting or exciting that makes you want to do it as a hobby and as a profession? <laughs> um, I think that, well, some, some of the answer to this is not necessarily about translation. Some of it just has to do with like my career path mm. in general that, you know, i I went to law school and technically I'm a uh, licensed attorney in California. <laughs> so, but I really hated the law and I worked for like about a year as an environmental attorney and didn't like it at all and kind of went back to translation and Japanese as a, not a default position, but just like, well, what other skills do I have here? You know, I spent all this time learning the law I used to do some teaching before this, like ESL teaching earlier before that. And I also can, you know, speak Japanese. So Japanese became kind of like, in terms of like supporting myself with translation, why I chose it. Partly it's just that if I had to go back and do everything differently, I'd probably just choose an entirely different degree. Like I'd probably might've like tried to study music composition and major in that. But as far as what I like about translation that makes it fun, it's it's mostly, you know, I like to read. I, I've always like really loved reading. As a kid, I was like a really voracious reader, would read like, you know, like a hundred books in a summer or something like that, compete in all these little like kid reading challenges and stuff. So, you know, devouring information in that sense is just kind of comes naturally, getting obsessive about stuff. But translation itself is fun probably just it's more like the end result is really fun like sharing these things with people that they've that are kind of like secrets you know mm. um like opening a treasure chest and just being like you didn't know this or you know this and th and this information sometimes that you're sharing with people can like redefine what they already know it like recontextualizes what they think they know about something uh and you know that's really exciting and fun and just the you know interacting with fans of of something and seeing how happy it makes them. For me, I think that's probably what I like about translation the most is that like service aspect. The craft aspect of translation, the intellectual challenge of it is definitely, it's fun. But like, if I had my druthers, I'd probably just do it as a hobby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, something I do a little bit each, each month. But um, I don't know if I'd call it like my singular life's passion, so to speak. Yeah. 
at some point along the way, you made that transition from doing music related translations to doing game interview translations. And it was through shoot 'em ups, uh, hence the name of your, your yeah. website. Uh, <laughs> I, I know you've told the story before, but, uh, would you mind uh, giving us like the short version of how you um, began doing your game translations? Sure, I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> it actually is connected to what I was saying about like the law stuff. I I got out of the law and for about a year, I like had no idea what I was going to do with my life uh, because you know, I had all this school debt from law school and I didn't really have a clear path forward. And I got pretty damn depressed. Like I would say the first time in my life that I'd been like really seriously, like clinically depressed. And that went on for a while. It was kind of a dark period in my life. That was about 10 years ago. And one of the, the, the way, one of the big ways I came out of it was actually in doing these translations. I started doing the translations for shmups forums for, for people there, uh, for, you know, I was really into shmup games at that time. It was kind of a new frontier for me. I, I stopped playing games for a while after high school to kind of focus on music and other creative stuff. And, you know, it all kind of coincided where I was picking games back up. I was really into shmups and I was really looking for something to kind of like give my life, I don't know, (laughs) some kind of like purpose or meaning in that like dark period. And, you know, building the website, uh, really, really helped with that. As for how it transitions from the forum to the website, that was basically, it was just, again, I was kind of like starting to get obsessive again about <laughs> something, in this case, these translations. People were really enjoying reading them on the forum. And I, at one point I realized I probably had like 40 or 50 of these just on shmups forums the, the original posts are still there and it was like at that point i was like well you know i've done i've had websites in the past that i've run i should probably try i hadn't really looked into website design in a long time but i decided it would be a good idea to archive these on shmuplations or on a site that i kind of in a cheeky way called shmuplations it's like a pretty bad name but <laughs> I I, I kind of wanted something that like if I googled it I could find immediately people talking about it I didn't want to call it something generic like you know video game translations mm. <laughs> Japanese video game translation association or I wanted to avoid that so I chose this really like wonky title that no one can pronounce and <laughs> you know everyone always says shmupulations I, I love that <laughs> So it started as just an archive of those, a simple archive of the stuff I'd done on that forum. And then basically I, I found all these other interviews um, online from this Japanese archive called the GSLA, which really what I found out later, I didn't know this at the time, but that archive was really just magazine interviews that they'd removed the uh, questions from and the sources. <laughs> So they just post something like Metal Gear Solid and a bunch of info from, you know, Hideo Kojima, but they wouldn't post any of the questions or say that this was from like, you know, 1996, March 3rd or something. So it was kind of like a mysterious archive of stuff. And in my later research, I actually matched up most of those interviews with the, uh, the official magazine source. But that, when I found that source, that was what like really blew the door open on Shmuplations as a like something I was going to do more 
like seriously and really expand because there were hundreds and hundreds of interviews on that, uh, on that archive that I don't know who had made it. The site's been taken down. Um, I never got in contact with the web owners of it. I tried to, but they just, they never responded or the emails went dead or something. Uh, and I think the GSLA archive got taken down like several years back, but yeah, that was, that was really the beginning of it. There were, there were other developments later, turning points for the site that kind of made it expand and get bigger. But that was, that was basically the beginning. Hmm. That GSLA website kind of sounds like a historian's dream and nightmare wrapped into one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It very much was that. You have all this amazing information (laughs) and you have no idea where any of it comes from. Yeah. And of course you're thinking, well, technically this could be made up or embellished or, you know, who really knows? Um, like I said, it was for different reasons. I ended up realizing that it was like 99% reliable info later on, but it was, I would say like my initial feeling and part of what got me to like work on schmuplations like even more was just, I saw all this stuff and these were for like classic games, you know, stuff like Metal Gear, like Square's Final Fantasy games, all these classic Japanese franchises. And like this was, I started reading it and I was like amazed that no one knew about this or had bothered to translate anything from it. (laughs) Like it was just sitting there online for years. I don't know. I probably found it in like 20, 2012 or something. But it had been started, I think, in like 2005 or something. So it had been online for years and no one had bothered to like translate it. And like that shocked me that people love talking about games. I mean, you go to any forum or anything, people have like long arguments about the fucking like history of like, you know, the canonicity of like Final Fantasy games or Castlevania or whatever. But there were just all these answers just sitting here to those questions. And so for me, it was like... Uh, oh, this is awesome. I can't wait to share all this with people. And I just got to work on on translating some of the, like, the low-hanging fruit. There were one or two other translators out there who had started it. There was a girl named Glitterberry who had a uh, translation site that had begun to work on a few of these. Uh, but like the fate of most translation sites is that basically people work on them for like six months or a year maybe do like 10 or 15 translations. And then for whatever reasons, you know, life or whatever, they stop and that's it. So there were some scattered things, but nothing systematic. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting that, that there was just all this information there. If, if only someone would, would realize that it's there because we have this huge knowledge barrier here in, in Western countries where, a lot of people are really into Japanese games, but we don't really know about them and, and the stories behind them. And it, it's, right. it's easy to think that, oh, it's just they're really cagey about the details or they've got some kind of culture where they don't feel like it's worth talking about it. But that's not the case at all, right? They're, they're really candid in some of these interviews. Yeah, they are. Um, that That surprised me. That definitely surprised me at the time. I think that... When I started thinking about it more, I kind of understood why things were that way. Why, you know, very few interviews were in a pre-internet age, especially, you know, when like the only way you could interview Shigeru Miyamoto was to like go to Japan (laughs) or, you know, 
be able to speak enough Japanese to set up a phone call meeting. And it might sound trivial, but those are those are pretty high hurdles and they're expensive hurdles. And Japan also Japan's domestic Japanese games have often like kind of swung between focusing on the American market or the foreign market and the Japanese market. And, you know, a lot of their profits came from the domestic Japanese market. So they just weren't always super concerned about like doing PR in America and Europe and elsewhere and, and conducting interviews. And it was, of course, just a lot harder then. So I kind of understood why. And, you know, the reputation that the KG reputation, that's still that's still kind of true. Like there was definitely with some with some developers, it was a lot worse than others. Like Konami was really notorious for not letting its developers talk about its games. So some of that's true, but yeah, the candidness, I think, you know, when you read like old, there are a few interviews with uh, people in like the nineties and eighties Japanese game developers, but the questions tend to be pretty short. And I don't know if that's challenges with the translator or whether I, I think a lot of it is Japanese developers not wanting to be misunderstood. And so not getting into like deeper details about things, but when they can speak in Japanese with each other, they're, you know, they're quite often, they feel free to like espouse their game design philosophies and stuff and criticisms. And yeah, it is a lot more, it's a lot more open when that, that like language barrier and even a cultural barrier, like Japanese people will often be very, um, they'll often be more tight lipped or they'll be more like careful about what they say to not be understood if they're talking to a foreigner, even if there's like an interpreter there. So there's that cultural aspect too. So yeah, I really did feel like just opening the lid on a treasure chest and, you know, I wish there was even more, <laughs> but what, what is there was really exciting to find. Mm. Yeah. Uh, on, on that note, uh, are there insights about game design, art, or music, or other sub-disciplines of game development that uh, really stand out to you that, that have come from all these years you've spent reading and translating uh, Japanese interviews? Um, some of the stuff is familiar to me because I have a background in programming. I, I actually used to do ZAD assembler hmm. um, programming. And so, you know... I, when they talk about programming stuff and programming challenges, those don't come as a particular surprise to me. Likewise with the music stuff, because I also have like a background as a musician and written my own sequencers and stuff. Like I know what Yuzo Koshiro is talking about when he talks about those challenges. So those, that, that background really helps me. So that's not, those things aren't super surprising. Some of the, I think I gained a deeper appreciation for the contribution of art design in general especially with like Nintendo's games, just, I think I appreciated what like a good pixel art designer can bring to these games. It's, it's really fun to like look at the history of the technology and see where they're, where the developers are like leveraging their, their abilities. And, you know, in the eight and 16 bit eras, you don't have a lot of, you can't do a lot of complex art, but a really good designer will, will take you all the way or will, will really like make the difference between a, a game that's really memorable and one that's not. Other than that, like, I think that I, one, one thing that I appreciate that I didn't really know that much about, and you see this in the interviews, if you, if you read a lot of the schmuplations, the interviews posted at schmuplations, but 
the uh, transition from 2D to 3D was really, I think, challenging for the Japanese game industry. Like there were, it was definitely like a, a turning point, like some, uh, there's a few developers that made that transition, like Squaresoft. And I, this like kind of amazed me reading like how Squaresoft basically took their entire team that had done like 2D graphics and stuff and trained them on 3D for like the Final Fantasy VII around that period. And just understanding how much of an undertaking that was t- and how transformational that was in the for the industry then was really kind of a, uh, it was just kind of eye-opening. Other than that, the like, I would say that most of what I, the, the the developers on the interviews, they talk all the time about like different design insights they have and, and their, their theories about game design. And, you know, it varies from developer to developer. So I don't know if there's an overall kind of insight. I would say more of the insights that I get from these are generally specific to the, like the specific games, you know, um, the fact that like Castlevania was designed by largely by Hitoshi Akamatsu and what he thought about that. And it's never been, you know, told before. And that's real. Those kind of things are really interesting to read. Mm. The fact that like most people think Mega Man was designed by uh, Keiji Inafune, but it was actually designed a lot by Akira Kitamura and hearing his ideas about that. So it's like more like specific to the game kind of, kind of stuff. I'm not sure. Yeah, that there's been like a, a bunch of many like macro level realizations for game development in general. But that might be because I already have had a lot of familiarity with it. So, hmm. One of the things that sticks out to me uh, as someone who interviews a lot of developers uh, in the States and in the UK and Australia and stuff uh, is that it doesn't really matter where you are in the world. Game development is uh, inherently a collaborative exercise. It's something that that you have this cross-pollination of ideas. It doesn't matter what the culture is of the place you're in and, and like how they, how they deal with um, authority figures and stuff that's irrelevant. Game development just (laughs) by design is something that is highly collaborative and that even if you have uh, detailed design documents, they're just, uh, they're just a list of ideas uh, to kind of get you started. Yeah, that's definitely true. That's kind of like realizing that, you know, movies are not just made by a director. Mm-hmm. They're made by you know, a lot of what people find like uh, emblematic about a certain film might be the work actually uh, more of the editor or the cinematographer than the director. Um, you know, and there are there are like the auteurs of gaming, people like Hideo Kojima and stuff, the... And I'd say even someone like Shigeru, Shigeru Miyamoto, people who just exert a lot of control and dominance over the flow of the game and a lot of control. But um, yeah, by and large, you know, it's very interesting to read these interviews and just realize that like, oh, you know, everyone talks about Hironobu Sakaguchi and, and Nobuo Uematsu for Final Fantasy. But in reality, like Kazuko Shibuya, the female pixel art designer, like defined the look of these games so much. And so, you know, it, it's really connecting all those dots and seeing who did what is it, and realizing that it's, it's not just one person is, is definitely one of the fun things about reading these. Mm. It's also one of the, honestly, it's one of the big challenges with uh, translating them too, because 
you know, one of the questions everyone always wants to know when they're reading these interviews, if they're a fan of these games, is like, who did what? Specifically, who did what? Like, who made that level or who made this character? And a lot of the times in the interviews, they're not they're not super specific about that. And some of that has to do with like the challenges of Japanese language. And so I often, one of my big, one of the biggest like hangups with these translations sometimes is just sitting there and puzzling over a couple sentences and trying to think like, do I translate this as I did this or we did this, like the development team? And uh, yeah, that, that can be just really kind of like, if you ever, if you ever read these interviews and wonder, like a lot of the times I switch to sort of the royal we voice, it's because that in a certain instance, it's not clear whether who did what. And you don't want to like misattribute, you know, something to someone that's, that's like really, because people take, people read these interviews and, and people aren't really, you know, the average American reader or, or European reader, or any English reader, they're, they're not really thinking about the nuances and the challenges of the translation. So whatever you write, they're going to take that as like, the kind of the gold standard. They're like, oh, he said Miyamoto did this, so it must be that it's true. They don't think like, oh, maybe he was talking, like maybe there's some vagueness to this or it's not open and clear. So as a translator, you know, that that can also be just a really hard thing about it is just trying to figure out in the web of collaboration, like who did what. Mm. Right. It's a lot of the process of translation, as I understand it, is uh, uh, focused around things like curation and interpretation. So you are you're, you are <laughs> in the process of, of trying to figure out what they mean, not what they're saying. Yeah, that is true. And, you know, it's funny. It's really actually, it's quite funny. I've been translating now for like, I don't know, probably like 10 years, 10 or 15 years in total, something like that. And What's kind of funny is that my translation like style as I've gone gone along has gotten less like literal and more like it's more now closer to interpretation, I mm. would say, where I'm not like I'm not torturing myself over the syntax of every single sentence exactly. <laughs> I, and I'm not afraid to like take two or three sentences and, and bunch them into one idea if it's like the most uh, elegant way to express what they're trying to say. And it's, it's really comes down to that, which is that as a translator, you're always trying to find what someone is trying to say. And especially with text where you don't have the ability to go back and ask the person questions. Like if I was in this, in the room during the translation and they, they started talking about some game design idea that came up, I could ask like, Oh, who said that? And actually, if you listen to the raw, um, I, I often work with like the raw interviews for companies and this is some of my other freelance work. And when you listen to those interviews, the raw versions of them before they've been transcribed, there is a lot of like follow-up questions like who said that, what, when, but in the interview that all gets cut out. Um, so the fact that I'm kind of like translating this stuff at a distance after the fact and can't ask those probing questions definitely makes it, <clears throat> makes it really hard. But you know, I think I like one of my favorite things I heard someone say about translation is that it's like it's pious transgressions. Like you're trying to respect the text, text, but you know that <laughs> you're going to have to make some compromises and something's going to end up being like mangled along the way. And game games and things that have like lots of fan bases, like for instance, look at like Smash right now, Super Smash Brothers, a huge franchise. 
if I go out there and like irresponsibly translate something or, or I'm kind of loose in my language, it could lead to like, you know, 20 fucking clickbait articles about how, you know, oh, Mario actually said this or so, you know, it's just like stuff like that. People, I, it's, it's a challenge to be aware of like who the audience is as well when you're translating. So yeah, there's, there's so many challenges <laughs> with translating this material. It's like, I'm not even sure where to begin. Mm. Yeah, like when you're doing history that's kind of a little bit inaccessible, there's this sort of responsibility uh, to your audience to to be as accurate as you can, but it's really, really hard, isn't it? It is. And I mean, there's like two, there's two senses in which it's hard. One is that you've got, sometimes it's just, you don't want to, you don't want to put things out there that can be misunderstood easily. And you don't want to like defile people's legacies or diminish someone's legacy. But the other challenging thing is that a lot of these developers and people that I'm translating, you know, someone like Hideo Kojima, he's like still alive. He's still working. He still like has a career, right? And although, you know, Shreplations doesn't, it's not like some huge publication or something, you know, the stuff I, I translate does often get um, rebroadcast via sites like Polygon and Kotaku and stuff. But if I, if I kind of like am, depending on how I translate what he says, it could be seen as like inflammatory. It could be seen as like dismissive. I mean, I have to, it's, you have to be really careful about how you phrase things in deference to the people that are like still working today. You know, I can't exactly just call him up and be like, Hey, remember this interview you gave in 1996? What did you mean when you said this? (laughs) And I see, I see, you know, a lot of the scandals that kind of, I mean, they're, they're minor scandals, but the scandals I see regarding translation, Japanese translation today comes from someone like not, not giving that consideration and writing something that sounds a little clickbaity or reckless. And like, I do my absolute best to avoid that, which causes other problems, but. (laughs) Oh, you want to elaborate on those other problems a little bit? Uh, well, you don't want to like overly sanitize what someone says either. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of like opinions about like, I, you know, I don't think that I keep using Hideo Kojima probably cause I was just reading one of his interviews like <laughs> earlier this week, but I don't want to, you know, what he thinks now in 2019 is probably not what he thought in 1997 or 1996. Mm-hmm. And I feel like some responsibility not to just, it's just hard because you don't, you, you want to translate directly. Like if he, this is by the way, not, he did not actually say this. What I'm saying is just using him as an example. But if he says something like, like derogatory about women or something, I have to be like really, really careful how I translate that. But at the same time, I also don't want to just lie. And Mm. From a tonal perspective, this is different from the kind of ethical controversy. One of the things I'm conscious of, especially after having done like now, I think 350 interviews for this site, is that like if I, if I do translate everything in kind of like my own very neutral tone, there's also a, a kind of a blandness to the interviews that comes about too. So there, that, that's a bit of a challenge as well. I, I sometimes it's fine for me to put the stuff out there and say like, look, this is a time capsule of what people thought back then. It's not necessarily what they think now, but you'd be surprised. It's like, I, I, I often read like the responses to these 
interviews around the web. And it's like, you know, my hope when, when I started Shmupilations, my hope was like, okay, I'm going to release these, uh, like primary sources that are going to put paid to some of these controversies about like game stuff. And it's going to elevate the rhetoric that Westerners have when talking about games, maybe put an end or help put an end to like just the constant runaround arguments that I see online occasionally. And now I realize that was very naive of me. (laughs) (laughs) And like all that happens is people extract like one line from a interview that I wrote or that I translated and then like have a, fiesta or like a heyday with it um so you know it's 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 basically there's no there's no good way to solve that problem i just try to be as respectful as i can and and i sometimes put footnotes if i need to and stuff but that said those are some of my favorite interviews to translate you know as as like vexing as this is sometimes like the ones that are like about you know uh like women in the Famicom or like, <laughs> you know, let's interview like three like women designers and see what they think or, or just stuff like that. It's, it's, those are, those are often like really the most fun interviews to translate. So, you know. Mm. That one in particular was this really interesting window into something that, that we just never get to hear about too. Yeah. And you know, one of the, if you want to talk about kind of like insights and stuff into Japanese game development culture, um, you know, a lot of the hot button issues and social issues that people talk about cultural issues in games today, like the, you know, the role of women in the history of gaming and sexism and things like that. I mean, Japan did talk about these things. They did have thoughts and answers about them. They're very much of, of the time. Um, but they aren't, they also aren't just black and white. Like there actually is a lot of nuance in the way, you know, it's a mixture. It's a mixture of like a lot of nuanced takes on things. And then also stuff that would make people totally cringe today to hear. So, you know, sometimes people, there's been like a debate lately too, whether like Japanese games avoid politics or not, or whether they, you know, what's the history of that. And like, I think if you read these interviews, you, you do see, you do see developers taking those things on in a, in a somewhat candid way. The answers may not be particularly, uh, they may not be the answers that Westerners want to hear, but they're, they're definitely discussing those things. And so, you know, that's, that's, that is a good example too, of a window into, like you said, a window into this, that like they, they will, all, they will never discuss those things with like a foreign reporter in my experience. Mm. <laughs> um, Cause it's just too, the lie, the likelihood, particularly nowadays, the likelihood of being misunderstood on those topics is just too great. So reading them talk about it with each other, probably in a setting that they never figured would be broadcast to the West is actually really fun. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, there's just a lot of responsibility. I feel with those. Um, I don't have that. Like, I don't, I don't come to these with a feeling of like, yeah, I'm going to like, blow the blow the lid open on this on this and like expose this scandal and like i'm not a muckraker with these interviews um but it's still very fun to it's still like fun and exciting to see those very different ideas about things from like 1987 or something (laughs) Mm. Uh, and you mentioned before um I guess you can call it translator's voice, uh, you know, the, the voice in yeah. which you write when you do your translations. Um, and 
everyone talks in different ways. People have different tone. People have like idiosyncrasies in their speech. Uh, how do you approach uh, translating these sorts of things? Yeah, that's it's a that's a good question. And honestly, it's one of the it's basically impossible to do um, fully because so much of a person's like personality and tone and character. I mean, first off, those things are highly, highly cultural bound, culturally bound. Mm. Like you cannot just, they do this in localizations all the time for games where they'll be like, Oh, this guy has a Kansai dialect. I guess people with Kansai dialects are funny and humorous. So I'm going to make him sound like a, like a Southern yokel. Like that's a, that's a like very, very, someone's taking a lot of liberty with that. And it has very little to do with accuracy and more to do with creating like a product that Americans will enjoy. Now, these interviews are not art products. Like, I'm not trying to think like, okay, I've got to render this guy's voice in a like entertaining way that will make people, you know, want to play this game or whatever. So because I'm reading just text, and even if I'm seeing like indicators in the text, like some, some interviews are translated more, uh, they capture more of the speech than other ones. Uh, it's largely just a, a decision based on who transcribed the interview, how much of the kind of ums and uhs and like things like that they want to keep in the text. But generally speaking, I try to keep things at a fairly neutral level, knowing that what people really want from these interviews is the knowledge and information and perspectives contained in them. They're not super concerned that, you know, Shigeru Miyamoto has like a particular accent or style of talking that's that, that would come across in Japanese definitely he has a he has a, a particular voice in Japanese but I can't really reliably capture that in English except in the broadest strokes like oh you know does a speaker sound kind of cheerful do they sound kind of academic and solemn do they are they uh, do they sound like suspicious and angry in very, in very broad emotional strokes, I can, I can depict a, a speaker's voice, but most of the time I don't, I don't invest like too much effort into that for these translations. If I was doing like localization, I've done a little bit of creative work in these where I have, where I'm like doing like manga translations or things. And I spend more time on that there because there's just an expectation that it needs to be an enjoyable piece of art. But for these, it's it's a bit more utilitarian and practical where I'm trying to convey the information in like the least colored way uh, possible. But like you mentioned, that has a side effect where after doing so many of these interviews, it almost starts to feel like they all talk like me. <laughs> uh, and it, it's just it's just a downside of like, you know, if I translated a book, it would be the same kind of thing where it's like, you know... You start. It's something you start to become aware of yourself where it's like, oh, I always use the same adverbs to describe like magnitude. Like I'm always saying really or very and like I'm using my like California vernacular kind of uh, with things or like or something like that. And I don't know. I try to get away from it. One thing that helps a little bit is using uh, guest translators, which I've started doing since last year. Um, but honestly, there's really no... There's, there's just no perfect, there's no good way to do that. Th thankfully, it's not what's important about the translations, but there's really no perfect way. Mm. I realize this may be a very hard thing to generalize, but uh, if we were to suppose there were this, this, this new translation that you got to do, uh, 
how, what what's your process? How do you approach it from like start to finish? For new translations, you know, every month I for some appellations at least every month I do like three. Hmm. The first the first step before I even begin translating, this is not particularly your question, but is just simply choosing what I'm going to translate. Shmuplations now I have a I have a, like an archive of probably around like 1200 or 1300 different interviews to choose from. And so if my patrons choose like that they want to see something from Final Fantasy 11, I I have like a choice of how much and what what to translate basically. Most of the time I have a choice of materials to work with. So the first step is really just kind of like defining the scope of what I want to translate. And that involves a lot of just like reading it and kind of like thinking like, okay, what's interesting and what's not, what do I, which, what parts of this do I want to translate? What parts do I want to leave out? So, you know, one of that, there's kind of like a pre uh, screening process that happens. That's very editorial in nature where I'm, I'm looking at someone saying something like, Oh, next month our game comes out and it's only going to cost, you know, 7,000 yen. And uh, we hope you all buy it and really enjoy it. There's kind of like fluffy commercial statements like that in a lot of these interviews that if I spent time translating them, I would have less time to translate the interesting stuff. Mm. (laughs) So I do editing like that. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll choose to leave out sections that are just kind of talking about game mechanics where they're just kind of describing like, oh, here's what our game does. And if it's not particularly editorial or if it doesn't have the developer adding his own like opinions to any of it, I'll often leave that out. Cause like at this point, people know that Metal Gear is a first person shooter style, like espionage tactic game. I don't necessarily need to tell people that again. And, um, that goes to like audience too. It's like, I realize with these interviews, people aren't reading them to like, they're not reading them for the same reason that people read them in 1996. In 1996, people read these because they wanted to like have a sneak peek at what this game was even all about. But nowadays people don't care about that stuff. They want to know like the intent behind the making of the games. So just as a preface to the translation process, that's the first big process is just defining the scope. Then I get down to work and I just, I'll usually, you know, at this point I've usually read the, 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 I've read the article once or twice. I may have had to do lots of, a, a bunch of additional reading on Wikipedia is like a common one. I, I have a pretty like broad knowledge of games, but you know, there's plenty I don't know. And there's whole series I know like nothing about. And th- those are the interviews that are, are really challenging actually particularly like RPGs and fighting games that have all this lore behind them. Uh, the Japanese developers don't, don't stop to explain who someone is when they're talking in a, a sentence or a paragraph about, you know, what this character did or some special move or the history of something. They just, like I said, it's a very in-group, out-group language. They assume you know all this stuff. And so th- a lot of the time spent on these is, is often just spent in doing research surrounding the game so that I can pr- produce a translation that reads naturally. If I don't do that, and you can find these translations online, there's plenty of translations people do where they you, it's kind of clear from reading it that they don't, they've never played the game. And so they translate everything technically correctly but the it, it's not really it doesn't really match up with the experience of playing the game. So I, I sometimes have to watch like YouTube videos a lot, let's play videos, stuff like that, to understand what a developer is specifically talking about in a scene. Because again, they're not particularly interested in being accurate. They they expect whoever's reading this interview to have played the game or know about it. But 
you know, so, so there's just a lot of secondary. I don't usually have to play the game. Sometimes I do, but there's a lot of secondary research that goes on basically in any interview that is about a game I haven't played. It's always relaxing and nice to like translate something I am a fan of myself <laughs> mm, of because uh, it's just like it's the, the difference is like it's like I, at least like 50 percent level of effort difference, <laughs> which is which is a lot. I mean, that translates to hours, basically hours of extra work. So, you know, this is nothing new for like anyone who does translation, particularly professionally, where you're working with clients and, you know, you don't know what this client's thing is or product is or what it is and you have to like research it and read about it this is like pretty common common ground for for translators i think but yeah like i'll get like two or three sentences in and then realize well suddenly i don't know what the hell they're talking about because i don't know who this character is what the name of this place is what this ability is things like that and so it can be slow going at first then there's once i produce a translation there's I, I usually, what I do now is I hand it off to my editor who I work with this really great guy. Uh, his handle on Twitter is GSK Gosokyo. And uh, that's been really like, kind of like life changing for me in terms of being able to continue doing the work uh, because he, he basically then takes the interviews and he doesn't really do much proofreading unless something's really obvious, but he takes them and he adds like the the images and the editorial text and the things that, you know, in a way, rare, rarely am I able to just take images straight from the interview and use them as is at where all the formatting is already done. Almost always I'm having to reconstruct visually points they're making in the interview as best I can so that it's, you know, attractive and easy to read. Like in, in this day and age, you know, people just don't want to read like a straight wall of text. So like, Reading, see, having the images that depict and illustrate like specific ideas is really, really key to to having people absorb and like dis- disseminate this information, basically. So I passed off to him. He spends the time doing that. Then he finishes that, and then I do a final proofreading where I try to catch any errors. And the proofreading stage is like it always takes a lot longer than I think. I often think like, oh, well, this is only, I'll just take thirty minutes, and then I'll be ready to upload this. And then like two hours later. I'm still like working on diction or word choice because translation, like, you know, there's translation exists at many levels and there's like the level of the word, there's level of the sentence, there's a level of the paragraph. And then there's also just general flow. And you can't, you can't think of all those things at once when you're translating, (laughs) you know? So when I go back and read it, I, I try my best to read it as someone that doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. And I make sure it sounds smooth. I add in like additional, uh, I'll sometimes add in additional like transitional statements or transitional words to make it flow smoothly in English the way an English speaker would. So that's why I say like over time, my translation style has gotten closer, a little bit closer to interpretation where I really want it to read well to English speakers so that they'll so that they'll get the information that's important in it. I'm not super concerned if like, you know, oh, but he didn't say the word and there, you know, you always have to go behind the text and think like, well, okay, but if he was an English speaker, what would he say? And so that level of like thinking about word diction and and, and like uh, flow is probably what takes the translation from being kind of like mechanical and like stiff to something that like reads well 
it's, it's really important part. So yeah, that was really long, but that's the basic process. (laughs) And it might take anywhere from like, I don't know, 10 hours for a single translation, sometimes more. It's a pretty big investment of, of time and energy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> that's kind of why that's why like Schmuplations has never really it's never been like a profitable thing for me. It's always been like half half job, half hobby, because I'm always putting in like a bit like some more hours than I'm actually getting paid for reasonably. So hmm. you know, yeah, but that's that's just how it goes. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. I mean, I've I had a book published uh, last year that I probably the amount of money I've earned from it uh, is pretty decent, but the amount of time I put into it would probably require that I earn two or three times as much money. Uh, and right, this, right. this podcast that I make, um, the the regular episodes where I'm doing these narrative documentary things, I would put in. And depending on the episode and and whether it has interviews and if so, how many interviews I might put in anywhere from 20 to 50 hours of of time. Yeah. Wow. If you include research, like editing and stuff like that, writing, recording, um, transcribing, uh, doing all the audio processing, editing it, mastering it, mixing it, adding in music, because I do absolutely all of it on my own. So it's a huge investment in time. Yeah. And you, probably on some level, you enjoy doing all that stuff is what I'm guessing. Like, yeah, yeah. Most of kind it. of the, the f- from zero to a hundred. Mm. Yeah. I used to write like really complicated D and D campaigns for friends and, uh, <laughs> you know, they started off as normal campaigns, but then gradually I started adding like, Oh, well I want to add like art to these. I want to like draw pictures. Oh, I want to add music. I want to compose music. Oh, what if I did like some, like, you know, actual video work and like recorded clips of things that they're seeing. And like, it just starts expanding more and more and getting more and more ridiculous until like, eventually it overwhelmed me and I no longer write those campaigns. <laughs> hmm. But, you know, it's, it's, there's some personality type. And I, I guess luckily I have this that just like really enjoys taking things from like start to finish like that, even though it's a ton of work. Yeah. And the, the part of the, that I find the hardest um, because I don't really enjoy it that much. And I think it was probably kind of the same for you is uh, when it, when it's done and it comes time to share it with the world, doing the marketing, the PR, the formatting it for (laughs) for your website and all that stuff. Yeah. I, that is like, that's my Achilles heel with this, this work. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit older. I'm, I'm 38 now. So, you know, my, my experience of the internet like my, it, my golden years do not coincide with like social media. Mm. Um, I have more of like an IRC, you know, <laughs> tight knit group kind of like mentality <laughs> with the internet. And so I find like promoting, uh, social media stuff. I, I just find it really tiring. Uh, and it's hard because, you know, this work is supported by individuals who I need to show, like, I need to show them what's, what's true, which is that like, without their, that I deeply appreciate their support. And without it, I would like, there, there's no way this could get done. But at the same time, it's also like, I just have an aversion to spending too much time on these things. So like, I have, you know, I have a Twitter account that I do a lot of like promoting this stuff with, but like, 
I'll go like five days before replying to someone on it, <laughs> treating it much more like a like an old school message board, really. And um, I don't know. I'm I'm sure there's some people that appreciate that that I'm not like preening on it all the time and just fucking sharing like pointless random stuff and filling up people's feeds. But there's also, I'm sure you relate to this from a just PR perspective. It's like if you aren't out there like frequently putting your content in people's faces, it just gets buried and they forget about it in the deluge of everything else. Hmm. So there's like a, there's a very practical side to this that I'm so bad at. And uh, even, you know, I like the work itself. I like the translation. I like the research, but I hate the like formatting of like the, I hate all the web editing stuff and the web mastering stuff. So finding, finding my, my friend GSK who, who does a lot of that for me, it's like, yeah, I, I pay him a portion of the site's revenue as well. Not not enough for what he does, but uh, that was a, a huge thing for me in terms of like just making it uh, making the work manageable because like I just I just can't stand doing all that. <laughs> yeah, and it, it actually it it was a big part of why you stopped doing the work for like a year or so, right? You when you burned out in twenty uh, seventeen. Yeah. Yeah. The, the missing year, the gap year. (laughs) Yeah. I, that was definitely, I think that I probably would have, was just burning out in general Mm. on doing the work. Like everything I've told you about being really obsessive with this stuff and like seeing like, Oh my God, there's a thousand interviews. I'm going to translate all of them. Ah." Like that mentality is really good and it gets things off the ground. Right. But it's not necessarily sustainable long term. And it's definitely a pattern I've seen in like other aspects of my life where I'm sure that many people can totally relate to this, this pattern of work where it's like, I tend to want to work really, really hard on something for a like three or four or five month period of time. But then it just drops, it goes to zero. It's like 100 and zero. And then I, I turn to something else that's interesting to me then, you know, and do that at a hundred until that falls to zero. But it's like, that is... Like that's, that's not a work ethic that's really valued in many spheres. Like you can't do that at your job. <laughs> Just decide like, well, I'm done now, guys. <laughs> and, you know, schmupplations, you know, it's not like, it's not my main job, but the fact that there's just a continual, at the time it was like people expected every month that I would put out translations it had the tenor of being a job because it didn't really have, it didn't really have like vacations or breaks. At least I didn't take many. (laughs) And yeah, I got burned out on doing the translations a lot. A huge part of it just had to do, you know, a huge part of it had to do with the fact that kind of like what I told you earlier on, I'm not like, I'm more of a generalist in some ways where it's like, I love video games and they're a huge part of my life, but they're not like the only thing in my life. Mm. There are, there are people who I, and I, this is not a slight on those people, but like that video games are like their one thing. It's like they live, breathe, eat, sleep it. That's it for, you know, 24 seven. And that's just, that's not me. That's never like been me. And if I try to do that for too much, like I said, I can focus on games with like incredible just concentration for like months at a time, but then eventually I need to do other stuff. And I I actually, before, you know, 
before I got into shmups and everything, most of my time was spent working on music. And that's kind of been a, a through line in my life. I'm actually a musician. And basically, I was I was having to work to get my shmuplations deadlines done uh, before 2017. I basically couldn't spend any time writing music, uh, composing, or like reaching any, doing any other goals and stuff. I, it was kind of cutting into time that I'd spend with like my wife and my friends. So it was just like becoming something where it's like, yes, I had the time to do it. It was taking up all my extracurricular time, (laughs) uh, with not, not nearly enough, like monetary reimbursement for that to be like sensible either. So, you know, that, that was the biggest thing. And I'm sure that like anyone who's a musician can really relate to this is like, it's not that I just wanted to like go, you know, oh, I, I'm tired of games. Now I want to go like, you know, watch movies or something. It, it's like when, when I can't write music, like for a long period of time, it just grows and grows and grows into this huge dissatisfaction where I'm just like really, really unhappy. There were, there were other challenges around that time in my life too. Like I had, a, I had a, like, I was living in a, uh, uh, my living situation with some roommates was like somewhat stressful and kind of, I was having a hard time like recharging naturally from mm. stress. <laughs> so all that kind of combined and, and then really what kind of blew it all out of proportion or, or, or kind of turned it from just a normal burnout thing to something longer. It's just that like, I, I have a bad habit that something I've like been trying to work on in my life since then of just like when I have a lot to do or like when things start piling up around me, I'll just, just do, I'll drop it entirely, just completely drop the ball. And like, that's my way of coping with it. So instead of like after a month or two, just being like, Oh, sorry guys, I kind of burned out and need to pull back a bit. I just like said nothing for like months and months and months and actually got a lot of music done during that period and did other things that I really needed to catch up on and do. But like my way of like coping with that stress was just totally like, counterproductive or (laughs) just not good. So, you know, that's, that's mostly what it was. I, I, you know, there are personal things going on in my life too, that are not really like worth getting into that again, made, made it harder to reset the clock, but that's what it was. And when I decided to come back to Shmuplations, it was, I mean, I never really wanted to like drop it permanently. You know what I mean? Mm. I just wanted like a complete break. <laughs> I, I wanted to like, I wanted to not have to think about it and be able to focus on other things like fully with the same level of commitment that I normally put into shmuplations. But I never wanted to just like leave it permanently. And, you know, I also missed like, there's definitely a sense of duty. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's like, I, I, at this point I've developed like a set of knowledge and skills where it's like other people can do this work for sure. But it tends to be in a piecemeal way. So it's like, you know, I felt like I had kind of also a duty to continue doing these because I didn't see anyone else out there doing it. Uh, <laughs> and I'd done all that research at the library too. So I would put in a lot of ground, I'd laid a lot of groundwork for like a very long, you know, long career, so to speak, uh, in doing this stuff. So it seemed, it was also a huge waste to just step away from it then. But mainly I just, I just missed doing the work and, but I knew that I'd have to like, I'd have to like find some way to not to balance it a lot better and, and finding Mm. the editor, uh, that got that my friend GSK finding him to work on it without him. I mean, I'd have to find another version of him right away, but like without his help, I, I would totally just like, I'd probably be 
have already fallen back into not being able to do the work again because I, I, I do not pay him a lot, but I know for a fact that he spends like, you know, several hours on each interview, just doing the extra research to find like the imagery and stuff and just all that formatting and web stuff. That's really like, it takes a ton of labor that people don't recognize and it's a nuisance and, but it has to happen for things to be other of anything other than just a wall of text. So yeah, mm. <laughs> he's like getting his help and then also kind of connecting with some guest translators like probably in January next year, I'm probably going to take a month off again because I'm going to be traveling and doing some other stuff and and wanting to spend some time focusing on music again. But now I have like guests, I have a kind of network of people that have worked for me before. They kind of know what's up. They know the drill, being able to work with them, bringing them into like the fold and having that be there is also just another huge, huge thing. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really good to to have people helping you. I, I hope that I'm able to do that with my thing one day. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it sucks because it's like, I'm sure you can feel this. Anyone who's working like in this kind of, I mean, it's not quite, Schmumplations is, I wouldn't say it's like an unsuccessful, you know, Patreon campaign or anything, but it's not like, it's not paying my bills. <laughs> mm. Anyone who's working in this kind of gray zone of like half work, half hobby, it's, if you start like adding in all the hours that you're spending on it, and then you try to like divide that into the money you're getting, it can, it looks pretty grim. <laughs> it can look pretty grim. So it's, it's, it's tough being a one man show. And I'm sure you, I know you can appreciate this is like, it's great because you have all this control, but it's, it's not as it in the long run, it's really hard to sustain. Mm. And, and I think also there's this extra factor that can be kind of draining as well uh, for people like us who are, um, this pro uh, our project is in the same field of work as our day job. Uh, so like you, you're a trans professional translator. I'm a, I'm a writer and journalist. So we're, we're both doing this, this stuff as our day job. And then we're doing almost the same thing for our, our side project that that's in that gray zone between hobby and work. And so, yeah, totally don't have that balance anymore. Yeah. What do you, do you also do audio production then uh, outside of this podcast? I'm, I'm trying to do, to, to start doing some audio production, um, professionally. I've, I've got the skills now to do it. I've like... Part of the reason for starting a podcast was that I'm a musician and and I wanted a, another creative outlet for that and and I've I've always nice, been nice. interested in audio storytelling so I wanted to learn how to do it and what's the best way to learn you do it right right <laughs> it's the, yeah that's cool well then you you especially know the sort of plight of the musician <laughs> yeah and it's it's nice that uh, having my own music. Uh, on my podcast does at least give me that outlet for music. It's like every few weeks I have an excuse to stop doing, <laughs> to stop doing writing work and start playing instruments. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I could totally relate to and understand that. You know, I, I was thinking of starting a podcast with some friends like a, about a year or two ago and we, we ended up not doing it. It would have been like kind of a movie review kind of thing, round table mo- movie review thing. But we, we uh, recorded a number of episodes, 
but for me personally, like one of the big draws was like, oh, and I'll be able to use, I'll, I'll be able to like write background music for this. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so I, I could totally relate to that. But yeah, I, I do translation as a, my, my full-time job is, it's not really, at this point, it's not even full-time. An interesting development in the kind of schmubilation saga, so to speak, my personal saga with it, is that, uh, you know, I moved back to Japan, uh, where I'm at right now, uh, last year. And I've been here now for a little over a year. And, um, one of the reasons I did that, one of the things that, one of the ways, and this ties back to kind of the stressing out kind of thing is I was, I was living in the Bay area, San Francisco Bay area, which is just become, I lived there most of my life, but it's just gotten like increasingly unlivable. Like you just cannot afford it unless you have a, a tech career or something. And even then, if you do your standard of living, I mean, it's super crowded. The traffic's crazy. All your time's going to be spent on that. You're going to be worked to the bone. I mean, it's like I said, it just kind of became an increasingly unlivable place financially and otherwise. And so my wife and I moved to Japan and we live, we live about an hour outside of Tokyo, about 40 minutes by train. But the cost of living here is so much lower that I can actually, I'm not really saving anything, but I can actually pay like most of my like living expenses off my schmuppelations work and with uh, some other like freelance game translations. So before in the Bay Area, I was actually working full time as a legal translator and, and then also doing these translations. And it was like really, really draining. And that was part of the burnout. But I've now transitioned into this kind of like more of a more of a freelance translator where like, you know, this month I have a few other clients and projects to work on other than schmuppelations, but it's much, it's much more relaxed and easier than what I was doing before. And I make way, way less money, (laughs) but just by changing where I live, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like my life is like, you know, 10 times better. And this is a, a, a feeling that if you talk to people that leave the Bay Area and in California in general, you will hear that this is a theme you will hear again. And I'm definitely, you know, adding my voice to that chorus, which is like leaving California, aside from the fact of leaving a lot of friends and family, it was like one of the best things I've ever done. So, so do you have um, ambitions for Schmappalations to become your uh, full job? Like stop doing the freelance work and just work on schmuppelations or do you always want to have uh that that other kind of work that you're doing um the other kind of work that i've been doing lately this last year is like 90 percent game related i haven't done legal translation very much of it since i came here partly the legal translation work has dropped off a bit uh i'm not sure why automation could have something to do with it. That's a whole nother story. The The kind of work I was doing before is very particular, but I don't really, at this one, I don't really draw a huge distinction. It's like there's Schmupplations is my clients. They're just, fun, it's just crowdfunded as a client. Yeah. And then the people who pay me, like there's a guy who's uh, been paying me to work on a bunch of Skies of Arcadia stuff that will probably eventually be hosted on Schmupplations. But that's a real outlier situation because he's just an individual and he can afford to pay like fairly close to commercial translation rates. So I get I get people like that, people from the community. And then I also occasionally will work with 
companies and like I've done some work for Sega. I've done some work for Polygon over the years. I've worked with like other small cottage video game developers. Um, like that, that kind of fills in the gaps, but basically, you know, I'm, I'm not able to save a lot of money, but I can live pretty comfortably as things are. And my goal with the site, I don't ever want to stop doing it. You know, there's still, <laughs> there's still like 1200 interviews left to translate. And, <laughs> you know, that, that sounds kind of crazy. It's like how at the rate of doing three a month or, you know, approximately like around 40 per year, how am I ever going to get that in my own lifetime. I mean, that would be like <laughs> 20 years, but you know, some of them are more interesting than others. Some of them I suspect will never get done because there's just not enough fans or support that want to see those. Um, but I, I still like doing the work, you know, most of these series like this month I did, uh, I haven't published them yet, but this month I did final fantasy 11 and I did a, a shmup called Zanuck, a compi- old compile game. And like, particularly with Zanuck, it's like, that was a super long translation. I think it came out to something like almost 6,000 words, which is like double what I usually try to do for these. But because I knew the game and liked it, you know, it was, it was like, that was more like the hobby aspect for me. You know, that felt like the hobby. Whereas Final Fantasy XI, I never played that game. I didn't know a lot about it. I had to do a lot of work. The edit, the, the, the interview needed a ton of editing because half of the statements were just like, talking about boring stuff related to the server that no one wanted to know, like, oh, the server was down last week or something. <laughs> <laughs> so that was much more like work, you know what I mean? And it just, it continues to be kind of like a half and half thing like that, but I, I don't ever want to quit it. My goal for it is, I mean, it would be great. It would be awesome if I could double the Patreon base, double the, the number of patrons and get it to like the point where I'm, mainly doing schmuppelations work and I don't even have to take extra commissions if I don't want to. But I, I think that's probably unlikely <laughs> mm. uh, to happen. I have a really, really loyal group of patrons. Like it is, I think that my patron retention rate is really high. Like these are people that have been supporting this site for like five years now. And if I look at their overall contribution to the site, it's like, hopefully, hopefully hearing this doesn't cause people to like (laughs) quit and be like, what the fuck? I've spent like $500 on (laughs) populations. I have a like definite fear of that. (laughs) Uh, But um, yeah, there's people that have like, you know, spent over the years, hundreds of dollars on this work. And I hope that they've, you know, gotten their, feel like they've gotten their value back. I think they have because... You know, I, I looked, I recently did a, a count of the amount of just words on the site and there's like 300 and 310, somewhere, somewhere around 300 and 350 interviews. And they're all like, on average, they're around 2000 to 2,500 words. And basically when you, when you add it all up, the site contains about like seven or 800,000 words worth of text, which is like seven or eight books. <laughs> and like that really hit me the other day when I, when I saw that, I was like, fuck, like I've been doing this for like a really long time. <laughs> and in my mind, it's just one continual thing. I, it, it's like, it hasn't really, you know, time has frozen, so to speak for this. I haven't really thought about that much, but in terms of, you know, where I want to take the site and stuff, I think that I need to spend some time and this ties into growing the site too, but I think I need to spend more time probably engaging in social media and doing more kind of curation of like what's there now, like Mm. 
just because I post a great interview on Sonic the Hedgehog back in August and a bunch of people see it, there's still tons of people that have never seen that and don't know anything about it. So I think I kind of need to like find a way to kind of essentially promote the legacy content that's on there in a way that's not annoying to people. (laughs) I'm really, really, one of the reasons you might feel this way too. uh, One of the reasons I'm really like hate uh, PR work is because I'm just like really self-conscious about like annoying people with like ads and stuff and just yeah, being like, uh, I, I uh, hate you, doing you, it. If, if you're following me, then chances are you've seen it. And so if I keep talking about it, then I'm just annoying you because you already know, you've already read it or listened to it. So. <laughs> yeah. And in reality, you know, when you look at how fast anyone's feed goes that has over a couple hundred followers, I mean, shit just gets buried almost immediately. And that's probably not a super legitimate, like, fear. But it's just a kind of modesty and shyness that I have with this stuff that makes me, like, just makes it hard for me to, like, engage in, like, proper promotion of it, I think. But that's something I want to get over is basically just, I want to kind of work on highlighting like, wow, you know, this started off as like a modest collection of 40 or 50 interviews. And it's grown to something that's really a unique resource online for this history. And I want to kind of be able to turn back now and like regularly share things that have already been shared, you know, maybe five years ago with, with people that haven't seen them yet or have forgotten about it or something. And so kind of figuring out how to do that is probably in addition to some, maybe some technical upgrades to the website. It's probably my, like, that's, that's foremost in my mind right now. Uh, as far as content goes, like I would eventually like to start doing like more video subtitling because there's some good video content on YouTube. That's never been translated interviews with developers and, and, and so forth. Uh, it's not as much as the written content, but, uh, you know, it's a video world. So (laughs) I, there's partly a promotional aspect of that, but partly just, oh, you know, I want to add this to what I do at Schmuplations. But the problem is if you want to talk about, oh my God, you want to talk about a lot of time spent translating like untranscribed speech, like just people talking in an interview like this, that is a, that is a fucking nightmare. It takes so long to organize it, to do the subtitle timing. It's, it's a whole big task in and of itself. So I haven't really figured out how to approach that yet. Yeah, uh, I can imagine how huge an undertaking that would be. Just thinking about how long it takes me if I try and do a <laughs> if I try and do like a two minute promo video of one of my podcast episodes, uh, trying to right. add the subtitles, getting them all lined up correctly. Uh, you can get them kind of auto generated, but they're wrong, and so then you then you got to fix yeah. them, and, and that yeah. takes ages. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, I, I'm doing some work right now for someone, this long skies of Arcadia, uh, interview. And it's a two hour interview with, uh, the producer and director, really, really great, great interview that, um, like the fans of the game will want to watch this, but it's two straight hours of text with four people kind of like talking over each other <laughs> and, sometimes like sometimes the mics are really quiet and other times they're way too loud <laughs> and it's just it's a nightmare to work with or it's not a nightmare i feel bad saying that because the guy who's paying me will probably hear this but it's very challenging and uh it's very time consuming and like you know they the subtitle timing 
I told him like, look, you know, I'll, I'll produce a translation for you, but I'm going to hand it to you and you can try to do the subtitle timing yourself, or you can pay me separately for it because that alone will take, I know how long it takes to time subtitles. It's a nightmare. So anyways, lots of, lots of just like, you know, the, the amount of labor that goes into this kind of stuff. I know you can appreciate that. It's, Mm. there's so much behind the scenes stuff that people don't see. Yeah, I'm obviously like Smuplations is not alone in this. Anyone that does their own kind of like, you know, hobbyist kind of side job. What do they call it now? Like a side hustle? Yeah, yeah, that's the word <laughs> like people they, use. They, so I'm trying to keep up with the young folks lingo. <laughs> I'll have to use side hustle in one of my translations soon. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's this is this is a common problem. Uh, I'm just one of many experiencing it. Hmm. And uh, just a, a little technical thing with uh, that: when when you run into audio or video stuff where the levels are really really different, you might be able to uh, make it a little more pleasant for yourself using compression. Like particularly, you can you yeah can slap upwards, a slap a compressor on yeah, there. You can do downwards <laughs> compression to make the loud voices quieter, but you can also do this thing called upwards compression to make the quiet stuff louder. Mm, right, right. So if you if you do some research into that, that, that can be pretty handy. It, it's a bit fiddly, but once you get the hang of it, it's really good. Yeah, I thought about that. I thought about doing that and then like re-encoding, remuxing the video. But again, those are like things where it's like, hmm, do I want to spend like two more hours of my time yeah. <laughs> doing this or, or however much? Once you've uh, learned the techniques, it can be pretty quick, but because uh, it's like kind of hands off, you just fire and forget. But right. to learn it will take you hours of practice. Yeah, that's a lot of things. Like uh, one of the struggles I'm having with schmuplations right now uh, is like with the web design, I kind of want to renew the website's design because it's not very mobile friendly. But one of the ways that the site is like manageable for me right now is that. I spent the time learning how to work with it. So I don't have to like relearn all that. And like you said, there's lots and lots of things when you're doing your like own one man show where, you know, once you, once you learn it, it goes pretty smoothly, but are you ready to invest like 10 hours in that? And that's just been the challenge is just like essentially not wanting to do that, (laughs) Mm. not wanting to do a bunch of unpaid labor, you know, and having other work to do and other things. So yeah, the plight of the side hustle. Yeah, for sure. Um, is there, I feel like we should probably wrap up soon. Is there anything else you'd like to sure. add about your work on Schmuppelations or like um, why it is an important thing to do? Yeah. I mean, definitely throughout this interview, I've just been taught, you know, the people who I assume will listen to this will kind of be familiar with the work already. So I haven't really talked about it in that general way, but yeah, I think Schmuplations is it, it's a it's a resource that I don't think you can really find elsewhere. I, I've done my best to keep it like free of commercial interests. Like, there's no ads. I don't have. I'm not beholden to anyone other than what I told you earlier. My own sense of propriety with wanting to be respectful towards the interviewers. I'm not beholden to like you know editors or anyone else like that. So. It's just the only resource I know of online that is working with like these old primary sources. And in that sense, some of the people that love it the most are like academics. Like a lot of people, I've worked with a lot of people who are writing books who 
send me messages asking if they can cite things. Sometimes they want more specific uh, citation information themselves, uh, or they have questions about interpretations. And that's always really fun to work with. And to those to those people, like it's invaluable. Like they cannot find this information anywhere else. And I'm basically just super, super proud of it. Um, <laughs> I'm really proud that I was able to like, you know, as I said, it, it starting it drew me out of a depression. And I'm really happy that I was able to do something like really positive and constructive with my life that turned into something that is so like unique and uh, enjoyable the uniqueness is a, is a huge part of it, I think, for me. Like, if if other people had been doing this work, I don't think I probably would have felt fired up about doing it so much. <laughs> you know, there's there's like a, a I'd say there's definitely an aspect to translator mindset where it's like this can be good or bad, but sort of like the translator's ego, where it's like, yes, I get to be the one sharing this with people, and you know, there's like there's an aspect of that too. But overall, it's like I, I loved Japanese video games since I was a kid. They're a huge part of my childhood. You know, Japanese video game music uh, has had like a huge influence on me as like a musician and as a writer. And, and like basically it's just I feel like I'm paying homage like a part of my own personal past in doing this. And that feels that's really satisfying to feel like I'm giving back to these these creators who would otherwise have no one would know what they thought when they made these games and like that that's that combined with just increasing the experience for fans you know that what i really want what i really i don't take too academic of an approach with these translations which isn't to say that i don't focus on accuracy but i don't include like 50 footnotes like i could include many many footnotes for any given interview but i don't i don't do that because i i the feeling I want people to get when they read these or, or like the intended audience is like, you know, when you go and watch a movie, I just watched some kind of crappy horror movie last night called Session Nine. Uh, it was OK, but <laughs> what I like to do, and I think a lot of people are this way, is like as soon as I'm done watching the movie, if I don't have someone to talk about with it right next to me, I like to go online and like read all the secondary literature how it was made, the trivia, things like that. It's not, not everyone likes to do that, but there hasn't really been a good way to do that for Japanese video games, particularly the older ones. I mean, you could read people's reviews, you can read people arguing on forums, but you can't get that experience of like getting deeper connection to the creators and the source material kind of thing that might make you want to go back and watch it again or play it again. And so that's like how I want Shmuplations to be. You, you finish playing Secret of Mana, it like leaves a big impression on you or you remember the impression it left you. And then you go back and you read this interview and it's like, aha, that's what was happening there. Oh, that makes sense. It's like that sense of revelation uh, for the players and fans is like what I, that's the other big key for it. I hope that it doesn't die like a slow death of <laughs> attrition from patrons leaving, you know, like that's kind of my that's the bad case scenario is that like, I just can't rile up enough continued interest in it. And then one day it shrinks down to doing two interviews a month and one interview a month. And, you know, it hasn't been losing money, but like, you know, it's been kind of treading water. So eh, I just hope that I can keep doing it. But mm. Yeah. It'd be depressing to, to have it die that way. It's much nicer when you can just say, okay, I'm going to pull the plug. Thanks everyone. <laughs> yeah. And I, hopefully I don't think that, for me right now, at least, I mean, fingers crossed, I could always fall into a level of poverty that would necessitate 
not being able to do this. And for sure, it's it's an entertainment and a luxury. There are there are far more important things going on in the world and that may happen. But for you know, for as long as I can, I want to keep keep doing it. All right. Well, I, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk to me today. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. I I hope it wasn't too long winded and <laughs> boring. But <laughs> no, I, I found it quite interesting. Um, I'm not. Not really looking forward to the amount of time it's going to take me to uh, to do the editing, just just because it's long, <laughs> like, because we right, talked for right. an hour and a Our, half or so. When you take out the the chit chat at the beginning, yeah, it was real fun. Sorry, I, I would have tried to be more concise, but I, I like I said, I have a bad habit of rambling on. So <laughs> that's fine. Um, so I, I guess there the are two final things I just want to uh, touch on. Um, First, uh, is there anything that you wanted to ask me? Do you have like a favorite translation from the site? Like, or things that, ones that like you really remember? Or? There, there are some that are really interesting, that I've found really interesting. Like uh, the women in, in game stuff uh, that you did not long ago was, was fascinating. Um, I did a mm. Super Mario Kart episode in my second season of the show and really enjoyed the, the interview you had on that. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Uh, That's a fun one. And and then besides that, I guess it's just like when there's a game that I like, it's always interesting to read more about (laughs) it. Like same, same as you. Yeah. Like like there's a one of the Super Nintendo Final Fantasy games or something, just learning more about its background. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely try to do, I I think I, as much as I can, I kind of like incline towards the eighties and nineties stuff. Because it's obviously it's my childhood and it's the games that I have nostalgia for. But it's also just like that period where it's like, whoa, no one knows how Final Fantasy 3 or, or 6 was made. That's crazy. Like our Chrono Trigger. No one knows like the, the story of that development. That's that just for the amount that people talk about and revere that game. It's crazy that these things are not known. That that was like my big thing when I started doing this work because I was like my the shocking thing was like, how have people not just translated this already? <laughs> how have people not just the minute they found this been like waved it around like a, you know, newspaper boy in like 19th century London or something like extra, extra. Like <laughs> to me, I, I was surprised by that, but. And I was just, yeah. uh, I was just scrolling through, uh, to remind myself some of the stuff you've done. And another one that's, that's great is the, the res interview. It's, it's fascinating to, to read a, oh, an yeah. in-depth discussion with someone who's not Mizuguchi. Like, I love that guy, right. but it's really cool to to have someone else's perspective on how that game was made. Yeah, that goes back to a question you asked earlier, you know, just about the collaborative effort is like, I love it when, you know, the person who's talking to me about Chrono Trigger is like the assistant art director. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> it really gives you like... And inside, or just the people like the the art designers, you know, like not the directors. There, there's definitely just a tendency to put the directors and the producers up front and center. But the producers are often like the they're they're the kind of the commercial face of the product, maybe of the game. But they're often like they have the least involvement in the development, so they're what they have to say is kind of general and boring. So, yeah, that res one that was one of the first. The res interview I remember now was actually one of the very first I did for the Patreon back when the Patreon was kind of brand new, like four or five years ago now. 
You know, one of the things I, just, I was just reminded of this, one of the things I didn't really get a chance to talk about in the interview, you probably have more than enough footage, but like, uh, it sort of reminds me of something to talk about in the future potentially is like, I did want to talk about, I, I kind of didn't have a chance, but about like the exotic, the exoticization of like the, that Japan has for the West. Like that, that was something that definitely like jumped out at me when I did these interviews is like, there's a lot of like, like people like to talk about like cultural appropriation and stuff these days. And they kind of talk about it like it's a Western phenomenon, but like Japan is just obsessed with like fetishizing aspects of like classical Western culture and history. And it comes across in the games a lot too. So seeing that's really fun, but I, I don't want to create more editing work for you. And I, at this point I don't have like my thoughts organized on it, but just something I wanted to mention in the future. And then the other thing I, I like kind of related to this that I probably should have talked about, but didn't was like one of the surprising things about, you know, one of the things I learned about studying the, uh, from the Japanese, one, one of the things I've learned from these interviews is that's been surprising is just how much Western influence there was on Japanese game development. Like I thought, I always thought of like, Oh, video games begins with the Famicom, you know, begins with the NES and begins with Nintendo and or that Nintendo like kind of existed in a vacuum and kind of came and kind of kickstarted all this stuff. And then learning about like kind of, oh, actually all those famous game designers, even for games that we think of that are like the most Japanese games, like Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy, those are like quintessentially Japanese RPGs. They, all those developers were influenced by like Western RPGs, like wizardry and stuff. And that's kind of known today, like among like fans, like that is kind of known, but that was like surprising to me to find out too, but. Yeah, the the more the more I learn about games history, the deeper I get into doing games history work. The more I discover this uh, really rich, vibrant uh, home computer scene that was just everywhere in the world in the in the early nineteen eighties. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah, I, I I had a little bit of I had some familiarity with that myself. I was like born in nineteen eighty one, but you know I used a lot of the computers they talk about. I have like a memory of using them when I was a kid. So it's kind of, and knowing like knowing the programs they are talking about in the games and like compiling basic and stuff. So I'm just old enough. And I started with computers just early enough that I can like, that I thankfully I don't have to do like oodles of research to know what they're talking about. <laughs> but yeah, that it's kind of like a little bit like the history of uh, Japanese and Western art, you know, particularly in like the 19th century period, like a lot of what people think is, like just the the influences both ways that happened between like painters and stuff uh with impressionists and stuff and ukiyo-e and like it's there's a lot of like cross influence that's not obviously known to the average person looking on but that was surprising for me to like know that like japanese developers held all these western developers in like such high regard and revered them and everything and were trying to imitate them when they did their own thing so it's kind of cool my thanks again to Alex for taking the time to chat. If you'd like to support his work, you can donate via patreon.com slash shmuplations or commission him directly for a specific project at shmuplations.com slash commissions. And you can also follow him on Twitter at shmuplations. I'm looking to make this interview series a regular thing on the show to run alongside the documentary and narrative style stuff, both during and in between the seasons. So if you have any suggestions or requests for people that you'd like to hear me talk to, hit me up on Twitter at Life and Times VG or via email on Richard 
at lifeandtimes.games. And as always, remember that you can support my work through paypal.me slash mossrc or patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. I'll be back soon with a new episode on Rockstar's GTA in a boarding school. Bully, one of my favorite games. I'll see ya. Don't.